Welcome to Devices and Desires, Finding a Sacred World in a Secular Age. We're looking at the culture we live in, exposing cracks in the stories that our culture tells us, stories about progress, self-image, success, all of those kind of things. And we're trying to figure out what it looks like for the gospel to open up from within that fragmented culture. We'll bring our perspective as Anglican Christians, but whoever you are, we hope you'll track with us as we examine the devices and desires of our own hearts and those of our culture. I'm Father Brian Wandell from Church of the Atonement. I'm joined by three good friends. Uh, friends, can you introduce yourselves for our people here? Uh, yep, yeah, I'm Deacon Matt Trailer, also at Church of the Atonement. Uh, thanks for having me on, Brian. Excellent. I'm Father Andrew Tebow from St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Brian. And I'm James Kibbe from St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda as well. And uh, yeah, it's pretty great to be here. Sure. We are, we're not all here. We're not all in one place. We're recording this over Zoom due to COVID. Um, but today is, uh, we're recording this. You'll receive this on another day, but this is St. George's Day, the Feast of St. George today. Uh, great day for Anglicans who often look to St. George, um, uh, the, the, healer, the hero who slew the dragon in the story. Uh, you know, so fun, fun story here. Seven years ago, I was in the hospital on this day because my wife was pregnant. We were about three and a half weeks from the due date, um, which doesn't seem that much early at this point. But uh, we had a surprise. The doctor said Casey was having some pains. And uh, the doctor said, we see some complications. We're going to take this baby. We're going to do this baby today. <laughs> and uh, my, we had planned for my son's middle name to be St. James. And uh, so we, we get into the hospital. We're getting the room. We're getting prepped. And the nurse had written on the whiteboard. She wrote her name, nurse, so-and-so. Here's the phone number to reach me at. And then she wrote at the bottom there, happy St. George's Day. And we're in this secular hospital. And we say, oh, no, I don't like the name St. George. But if the baby is born today, we have to name the baby's middle name St. George. Uh, fortunately, Casey also didn't like that as a middle name. And she held off until just after midnight. And we avoided St. George's Day and that middle name for our child. Uh, so anyway, special day in our heart here. We are coming into this episode for Devices and Desires. Um, this episode, we're going to talk about the topic of sex in our society. Okay, big topic. Uh, so many things that we could talk about. Uh, so, many, so many ratings that could be given to this episode uh, based on maturity <laughs> and that kind of thing. But, uh, but we're going we're gonna to limit it. Um, three of the four of us are, are clergy. That doesn't make us prudes, but we are sensitive to our audience at the very <laughs> least. So one would uh, hope. So, one would hope. <laughs> so we're going to limit this discussion. We're talking about uh, specifically how just the, the, the role of sexual relationships in general influences all of us in our society and uh, our relationships, even if that's not a relationship that you're in right now. And in particular, Matt, Matt uh, Matt's going to give us some information here about a, a book. And so we're just going to use that book as a jumping off point. Again, many things that we're not going to talk about in this episode. Uh, but I do think that some of the material here will be, be really fruitful as we think about living out a life of faith and discipleship in the modern secular world that we're in. Okay, Deacon Matt, um, question. Uh, you've, you've had some material here that we're going to use. 
what, what material what, what material are we using cultural material that you found to be helpful for this discussion um, yeah I, as I was um, thinking about how do we think about sex um, so this isn't a book um, about sex so to speak but how we think about it um, I'd come across this resource called divine sex is the name of the book trying to be provocative um, it's subtitled a compelling vision for Christian relationships in a hypersexualized age um, by Jonathan Grant um, and I think what the book does best is that a lot of what we're trying to do here on the podcast is analyzing what does our society think about sex um, in uh, many, he, he's using a few guys, uh, a few other philosophers, um, Charles Taylor, James K. Smith, also some sociology on sex and, and sexual relationships. Um, and he's kind of bringing these together to come up with a picture of, okay, what does sex look like in our society? And it's really hard, right? Because, um, no, 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 no actual pictures in this book though. Thankfully Correct. not, um, not even any <laughs> diagrams of ideas. So that's good. Uh, and, uh, but what um, he does do that I think is helpful is he's painting us a picture because it's really hard to um, kind of take a step back from our own society and be like, wait a minute, you know, as, as Jamie Smith uh, would say in another book, um, what's the water that we're swimming in here? You know, what's, what am I being fed? Um, and how, what is that doing to me? It's, it's hard to get a sense of that unless we kind of stop and think about it. Um, so anyway, I, that's what I found most helpful about the book. And then he's also trying to do another thing that, that we hope to do in this podcast is what is a Christian response? How, if that's the secular narrative, um, the society we live in being a, a mostly secular one, um, what's the Christian story? What's the Christian narrative? So um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it on the whole. And Matt, you know, this was your idea uh, to jump into this topic, use this, use this book. Uh, wh did why you do you the think- the horn as the bus came by? No, I did not. Uh, <laughs> um, you were driving the bus yeah, yeah. over Matt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why, why, why did you want to um, jump into this topic in particular? Uh, why, why is it uh, something that you felt was necessary to get out there? Yeah, it's good. I mean, you know, for one, obviously, personally, we all struggle with our sexuality in various ways. Um, and so um, we do want to take time to stop and think about that. Like, what are the forces that are kind of pushing in from society that um, create some of these tensions that we live in. Um, I think the book really, though, identifies two reasons um, why we should talk about this as Christians. Um, and the first one is that, um, frankly, society doesn't get the Christian vision of sexuality. Um, I've got a quote here from the book. Um, the author says, the Christian vision of sexuality seems naive, unreasonable, or at least impractical with all its rules and regulations. Um, and I think we feel that um, as Christians, as the church, um, that you know, what we have to say about sexuality just doesn't register for, um, in many ways. And so we wanna kind of stop and say, okay, well, well, what is it that we think? And then what is it that society thinks? And there's kind of this dialogue aspect of like, oh, this is helping us have a better conversation with society. Um, and also we, as Christians, we think that um, our, uh, our calling is to bless society, is to reveal what God um, wants to do in society. Um, and so something like this really helps us like, well, who's the other partner that we want to talk to here? And what do they think about um, sex and what we're talking about? That's really important. Um, second uh, reason is that, uh, that the author points out is that Christians um, have to assimilate to society. 
and sometimes we've assimilated in ways that we've stopped being ourselves and we've started being um, the false picture that society gives us. Um, here's a good uh, example. Uh, the author says, there's this, a significant gap between what evangelicals believe and what they do in their sexual behavior. For instance, while young evangelicals say that premarital sex is always wrong, fully 70% of unmarried evangelicals said that they have had sex with at least one partner during the previous 12 months. Um, and I think that really gets at um, not just our own um, issues, uh, which is obviously true and something we're always working on, but the fact that we have some um, dissonance between what we think and what we want to be the case and what our practices show that we actually love and the world that we inhabit and things like that, what we want reality to be and the reality that we actually live in. And so we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what's, what is the difference and the reason why that, that these things might not line up? Um, yeah. Great. Well, you know, uh, we, the perspective of some of what we're doing in this podcast is that uh, the, the reality, you mentioned like the reality that we live in, uh, that what we live in is something that um, uh, it's not so clear to us that it is a, a story being told to us, uh, but it's there. It's there all around us. And, um, and when we think about this topic, we're, we're thinking about all kinds of stories without realizing it. So the first thing I want to jump into here is uh, what's, what is the secular narrative? What is the secular story around us that feels uh, feels like it's all around us in that image that we have like cement. It's just like, it's hard, it's solid. It's, it's, you know, it's just, it's smooth. It's, it's, it's what seems to be the story about uh, sex and sexuality, sexual relationships. Uh, what is that, Matt? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I think it's helpful to look at history, um, to look at the history of ideas, things like that. Um, first though, I'm reminded of a story that I heard secondhand um, from a Bedouin, a sort of like um, Middle Eastern uh, shepherd uh, that, that, you know, many of them still today. Um, and he, he was uh, observing, kind of meeting up with Western society and, and the changes of views on sexuality. Um, he said, well, you know, when, when I was a kid, um, when, when I was growing up, first you got married, then you had sex, and then you fell in love. Okay. Well, our children came to me, this is an older man, our children came to me and said, well, first we want to fall in love and then we'll get married and then we'll have sex. He said, okay, well, I guess, you know, I understand that a little bit, but it was strange. But now the children come to me and say, first we want to have sex and then we'll fall in love and then we'll get married. <laughs> and I think he was running up against uh, this uh, the, the change in, in society and the prevailing narrative of uh, what sex is and what marriage is for and, and what love is all about. Um, and so the book kind of highlights um, one uh, key phrase or idea that kind of captures where we've got to in society. Um, he's really tracing it back to the 18th century in the Victorian period um, where sex becomes a sort of natural and morally neutral thing. Um, then up to Freud, where sex becomes um, an in and itself, and then into the sexual revolution of the 1960s. But anyway, he captures all this um, with this idea called expressive individualism. Um, so those are two big words, expressive and individualism. Um, so just to take those two words, so this is like the main idea of the book, so I'm going to spend a second kind of 
um, observing this. Uh, the, the second word, individualism, um, this is this focus of, on autonomy and personal freedom. Um, so individualism um, is this sense that I need to be free from uh, other um, mores. Uh, I need to be uh, autonomous, my own self. Um, so that's individualism. Uh, ex the expressive part, so expressive individualism, the expressive part is that we find personal meaning through romantic intimacy. Um, so expressive means romantic intimacy is who I am. And individualism is freedom or wanting to be free. And so the point of saying this, expressive individualism, is that, and, and I think we, we all feel this in secular society, is that we're kind of at this juncture where we both highly value being free, right? We want our personal freedom. It seems almost American, right? <laughs> um, personal freedom. Um, but we also want to express who we are in our romantic relationships. Um, and so we're, we've got this tension going on where it's, well, I want to be free, have things the way I want it, when I want it, how I want it. Um, but we also want to be ourselves primarily in terms of um, our, our sexual expression, our, our intimacy of, of finding other people on this journey finding themselves. Um, so this is the main idea, um, expressive individualism, this juncture of um, highly valuing our own freedom, but in, in, in an individual sense, but also like I find myself through these romantic relationships with other people. So on the way, you say that's a tension, right? Like there's this mm -hmm. tension between um, me as the, the autonomous individual, but also then wanting to um, find who I am in the context of a relationship, which, which inherently requires there to be another person. So there's a sense of like giving up my autonomy, right? And so that's the, the tension. Mm. Um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of the book. So if I'm getting ahead of the book, then, then let me know. But in our context, we, um, we're seeing at least a, a, a growing sense of where uh, that individual expressing themselves um, almost begins to see the other as less of a, uh, an equal in the relationship with, with me so that I'm actually having to give something else, something up to that person. But more of that person seems to be becoming more and more like a tool. Uh, for my own personal, like my my own personal enjoyment, my own personal expression, um, and so I'm, it's less that I'm giving up something for that person as much as I'm I'm using that person, and that sort of flattens out the tension. There's no tension there if that's the case. Does he get into that? Does the author get into that? Am I getting ahead of the book? Like, <clears throat> no, no. I think you're totally right on. Um, and in fact. Um, it, uh, and real quick before jumping into to that idea, um, just to say that, you know, when we stop and describe um, kind of how we feel in our society about sexuality and that sort of thing, this isn't to say um, that everyone feels exactly this way all the time or something. Um, it's just the pressure that we feel in general, this kind of ideal, you know, that's been built up and we see it everywhere. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so it, it's not to say that like, oh, everybody thinks this or everybody believes this, but I think it's the sort of um, perception or ideal that we hear a lot in our society. And so, um, yeah, and, and this being a, a good example, Andrew, um, and in fact, um, he kind of grounds this idea, this expressive individualism um, in a few philosophies. And I think one of them is what you're 
um, describing. Um, the first one he talks about is utilitarianism. Um, so that the point of life is maximizing my happiness. And so, like you're saying, once this gets applied to sexuality, um, then sexuality isn't about another person. It's about experiencing as much pleasure as possible, right? Um, so I, I think, yeah, this is very much what you're um, getting at is very much on task with what he's saying um, is because we've taken sexuality um, and in kind of detaching it from um, other relationships and detaching it from uh, procreation, from partnership, um, from other people, even our own bodies, um, some views of sexuality, um, we end up with, well, this is just in uh, happiness uh, technology, um, a way in which we can get more pleasure, you know? Um, so yeah, I think what you're saying is, is right on with um, what he says. Um, in fact, you know, we've got plenty of pictures of this in our culture. Um, you'll hear things, these are just kind of <coughs> slogans that we hear um, of, well, your sex life should make you happy, right? Um, we'll hear that uh, sort of thing all the time. That's what sex is for. Or, or uh, the Im implied, well, sex is also about pleasure, you know. Um, and, and it's not so much uh, the feeling, but it's the, that's the goal, is to get more pleasure um, out of this. Um, I, I think we see this in, like, TV shows. Um, uh, sex in the City is, you know, a sort of popular one. Um, the, the idea of sex without strings um, that's this kind of utilitarianism at work um, in our society. And it, it's just what we see everywhere. Um, and the, the message, the idea about sexuality that we get. So, yeah, I think that's right on. So we're, we're talking right now about the, the stories, the narratives that we live in. And in, in particular, Matt, I know what you're starting to get into is mm. there are some like ideas, philosophies behind the ways that we tend to, in some ways, the ways that we act, but certainly the ways that we, um, have, have ideas about what, what, how we're supposed to act, uh, how it'll be fulfilled. So utilitarianism is, is one of them, but it's, prob it's probably worth noting before we keep on going to the others is that it's, like you said, it's not that you necessarily have like thought out a philosophy before you think about the role of sexual relationships in your life, but we're really talking about these like deeper levels of desire and that we, when we normally talk about sexual desires, you think of it as like a, a biological urge and therefore like we always experience them the same ways. But actually desires have to express through, through words which aren't just like automatically come to you, but we get these around us. So like if I suddenly have an urge for uh, a Hershey's chocolate bar, like that's not like a strictly biological urge in the sense that like if I had never heard of Hershey's chocolate bars before, I wouldn't have wanted that thing. If I had never seen the commercial for it, I wouldn't have wanted that thing. And in the same way, some of these ideas and philosophies start to condition us to, to want certain things or want them in a certain way or want them in a certain order, like you're saying. And that's, that certainly deals with, like you said, about order and sexual relationships or what they'll do in my life. So anyway, just clarify that a little bit there. Um, all right, so you were talking about utilitarianism, Matt. Mm -hmm. uh, and if anything else you want to add on that one? I was just going to say, it seems right uh, to me, Brian, um, it, because like, you know, you just read ancient biography and whatever. It's not like we've never had sexual desire before. Um, it's just how we construe that sexual de desire, how we think about it, what it's oriented towards. Like, that's what really has changed with regards to 
um, the secular society that we're living in. Um, not that people haven't always struggled with sexuality and figuring out where it should go, but more so like we think it should go this direction. <laughs> and you know, utilitarianism, um, the maximization of pleasure is is one way in which um, we've um, thought about how we should use our sexual desire. I guess. Cool. All right. What's uh, what's another idea or w- a way that's kind of influenced how we think about this? Yeah, he's got three. Um, the second one he calls romanticism. Um, and I think we all get this, you know, as like a, an art movement as well, right? The romantic. Um, and uh, the romantic will uh, say things there. There are signs around my neighborhood that says love is love. And what they mean is, right, not just they're not stating a tautology that we all already knew. Uh, what they're saying is the desire of love is what should um, define love, that um, the quality of our love is what should define our sexual relationships. Um, so this is a, a romantic idea. Um, you know, you might hear that kind of romanticism more popularly. Um, I hear this frequently in TV shows. Um, somebody asks, you know, so, somebody's contemplating a romantic relationship with another person. Um, and the, somebody will ask them, well, do you love each other? Like, so the, the decision comes down to like, what is the quality of your feeling, your intuition for that other person? Um, so that's kind of the, the romantic um, sense of, of self, of love. Um, and, and so that kind of cashes out in a couple ways when it comes to sex. Um, sex is, again, about free love. Like, however you're feeling, that's the kind of sexual relationship you should pursue. Um, another way that this cashes out in terms of sex is that um, sex, as the author puts it, is a quest for authenticity. Um, so you really know who you are. You find meaning in life. Um, you discover yourself uh, through this sexual relationship, um, that through experimentation or through, um, or through discovering your feelings and following the right ones, um, you arrive at uh, your, your authentic self, who you're really meant to be. Um, following kind of yourself on the inside. So um, yeah, there's another TV show this week um, that I had watched. um, And these two people who like life circumstances, uh, they couldn't be together. um, And the one male character said, you can't deny what we have between us. I'll leave behind all of my responsibilities for you. (laughs) Like that was the line, right? So everything else doesn't matter. All that matters is this attraction that we feel between us. So this is kind of the the basic romantic impulse of of the expressive individual. Romantic, by the way, not being like a candlelight dinner. Uh, but uh, like a like <laughs> sexual that, that, attraction. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I think, like you said, the, the word authenticity I think is the key word there, which is mm. a good one. And that like sense that we we there's like a core authentic part of who I am that's not like anyone else. And if I try to be like anyone else, then um, well, I, I don't whatever. I'm causing problems for myself. Or I'm not being not being true. Uh, and and there's there's something to that. I think we all have a feeling that like we don't like to be caged in by certain things. But this is like like an extreme of uh, like I, if I don't express that, like I, I must express this. It's like the ultimate value in my life. Um, and that's been going on for a couple centuries now. That that is like a core value, right? Mm-hmm. All right. What what else? Or any of you want to comment on that? Well, I, I'm I find it curious that authenticity would be under the the umbrella of romanticism um and romanticism 
like as an artistic expression or a philosophy is uh, in some ways it's not authentic because it, it looks to the ideal. Um, it's not like a, um, what was the artistic movement that's looking for uh, to paint things as they actually are right with the romantic realism, you, mm-hmm. realism right. Um, so to put like, I think that says something about authenticity in our age, if it falls under, I mean, I'm thinking of, um, you know, seeing people's profiles on Facebook, right. And you don't get the, the, the realist painting, you get the romantic painting that shows like all the kids are perfectly put together and sitting nicely on a bench and nobody's got grass stains or holes or, you know, mom's hair is put together perfectly, you know, like, uh, that's not real life. <laughs> Nobody lives like that. Uh, and so then to put that like authentic under that seems to be something of like, uh, almost like a, a cognitive dissonance. Uh, yeah 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 i i think you're right there's definitely a dissonance there yeah and yeah i think that gets at the tension of like the expressive part is like oh i really um need to define myself in terms of this ideal picture but in real life it doesn't actually work that way right (laughs) yeah i I think and and romanticism especially came up uh it's like the early 1800s in philosophy and like poetry it came up after Immanuel Kant, which was like this very like calculating, you know, uh, kind of philosophy. Um, there was a subjective element into it, but romanticism was a reaction because it was like, and not just that, but also just like industrialization. When everything is like calculating and you're overwhelmed by everything, you feel like a cog in the machine. Romanticism feels really good that there's something core about you that there reaches, tran- yeah, it reaches transcendence, right? The, the, the core in me is like, is divine in a certain sense. And that's, you get back to the early romantic poets, they're always talking about this kind of thing. This like, your childhood is this like uh, core authentic thing or something like that. The divine so that, spark within, right? Like, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's a good, like, I think reminder that, you know, our, our sense, our, our desire to feel authentic in some ways um, is a reaction to uh, not being valued in general by our culture, right? So the more, the more we feel like one in seven billion, the more we feel like uh, what I do or vote or whatever doesn't matter, uh, the, more, the more attractive uh, that romanticism, authenticity feels to pursue that in your life. Yeah, and I, I, let's, I want to put a pin in this, but I, I think it's important or worthwhile making a connection that I think Charles Taylor makes when he talks about authenticity. Uh, and that need for authenticity coming out of uh, a pushing off of the transcendent, right? So in our sec- secular age, right, the, the age that doesn't have to do with God, that doesn't define itself against the transcendent being, um, we've lost meaning and purpose. And so now it, it's much easier for our society, for us to feel like one in a billion or seven billion whatever it is, and to need that authentic expression because I've, I don't have meaning and purpose built into me any longer. Um, and of course, this plays out in sexuality. I think we should come back and talk about this, but um, I think there's an interesting connection there too. Definitely. Uh, Matt, you had one more, I think, uh, the yeah, ideas you wanted a, to get into. Yep, there's a last one um, that he talked about, um, and he calls it postmodernism. Um, and the idea is basically that kind of everybody has their own private morality. So um, kind of like you were just talking about, Andrew, there's no sort of transcendent um, morality way to understand reality. Um, and so each of us kind of has to define that for ourselves. 
Um, so you'll uh, hear this pretty frequently, and then as applied to sexuality, um, pretty frequently, hey, everybody's different, you know? Um, just this stark um, uniqueness of every individual. And not to say that the individual shouldn't be valued, um, but to say that each person is kind of a, a world into himself sort of thing. Um, you know, another way um, in terms of sexuality is that, hey, uh, it's your body, it's your choice. Um, and not to say that we don't have responsibility, um, but to say that um, you get to choose what morality looks like in your particular body because only you uniquely know um, yourself um, sort of thing. Um, so what this does is this sense of um, everybody has their own uh, right and wrong, or at least their own sense of what should or shouldn't be done when it comes to sex is that, as you're just saying, Andrew, um, it's really in kind of, this is working off of romanticism, um, that it, it's personal feeling that tells you um, what the transcendent meaning is. So there's no identifiable or, or objective sense of um, how one should conduct themselves in any ethical sphere, uh, even sexuality. Um, but it, it's kind of through personal feeling that you uniquely as an individual get to decide that. Um, and uh, another um, sense of sexuality is that um, it's kind of this, we, we talked about utilitarianism, that, um, you know, it kind of comes down to your physical pleasure. And, and if you make that unique with this postmodern idea, um, then it's really experience itself that sexuality is all about. Um, so it's not so much um, that like, even that sex gets me to pleasure, but the pleasure and the the process is all there is. That's the only meaning that we have here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think of um, a TV show maybe from a couple years ago um, where the the main character, um, you know, uh, was uh, intentionally looking for new and exciting ways to have sexual experience um, because he thought of himself as... Um, that, that sex had no other meaning, that this is what it was about, was kind of finding new and adventurous um, sexual experience uh, because he was trying to define for himself, his own private uh, morality, what sex is. It's, it's uh, the experience itself. Um, so that's basically what we get with postmodernism. And, and you can see kind of these three things like um, utilitarianism, sex is about um, maximizing pleasure, and then this romantic ideal, and then this postmodern ideal, they kind of all build off of each other and end up in what the author is trying to, de to describe. He calls it um, expressive individualism. Um, and I think we get this. Um, he, uh, in the book, he, he goes into um, this uh, new situation where we're finding more and more people, uh, what he calls, and maybe other people call, going solo. Um, he gives these numbers. In 1950, 10% uh, of households lived alone. In 2012, 30% of households lived alone. So uh, three times as many people were living in their own households. Uh, and also, more than half of people under age 35 in big cities are going solo. Um, and he uses that as an example to say, we wind up at this juncture where um, we want to be free and living by ourselves and uh, making our own decisions with no outside um, uh, authority pressing in on us. Uh, but 
even in the midst of that, we also feel this pressure of how of um, I want to define myself and my morality and my intuitive feelings on this quest for authenticity with other people who are also experiencing these things. You know, um, so this is the the secular juncture that we've arrived at um, that he's trying to describe through these philosophies. In some ways, uh, you know, you talk about postmodernism here. I guess if we wanted to define that quickly, it's it's basically just like the, the total loss of absolute or transcendent values. Everything is kind of socially contingent, uh, you know, that socially uh, uh, defined, um, that kind of thing. But there's on the one side, there's like a uh, like a cultural postmodernism, or I might say like a lazy postmodernism, which is basically just like a romanticism. Like you kind of find what I'm. It's like uh, no one can tell me what I want. Therefore, what I want is a transcendent meaning. Uh, and then there's like a rigorous postmodernism, which is like there are no transcendent overall absolute values. Therefore, um, even whatever I choose is not a value. It just I'm just going to do whatever I want um, uh, because there there's meaninglessness there. And and probably depending on who you talk to, most people are going to fall into the former category just because it's um, it's kind of lifeless <laughs> in the in the second category there. Um, but there's definitely a connection between them. The assumption that that essentially, you know, th there is nothing outside of me that uh, impinges upon me to make a decision for a particular reason. All right. Well, we've uh, we've been talking about halfway through here. Um, we're going to take a brief break here. When we come back, we're going to get back into uh, briefly, I guess, what are the problems with these narratives, these stories that we're living in. And then what does it look like for the gospel to flourish from within this kind of culture? So we'll take a break right after this music. You are listening to Devices and Desires, finding a sacred world in a secular age. Like and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash devices and desires. Welcome back to Devices and Desires. We're seeking a sacred world in a secular age. Our topic today is sex in society. How does that affect our relationships? Um, regardless of what kind of uh, romantic relationships you may or may not be in, we've been talking about the stories that our culture tells us. We spend some time on that to analyze them. So actually this next section will be uh, a little bit quicker because we've already been pointing out some flaws, I think, in some of these stories. Um, so what, what are some of the problems? How, how does this seemingly solid thing that we're living around break up? How do these stories break up? Why is it, why is it not so simple as our culture tells us? Yeah, Brian, I think you um, got at, um, or I'm sorry, actually, Andrew, I think you were getting at um, a good one uh, that, that makes clear in the book as well. Um, that sex has lost its grounding and purpose in our society. So the reason why we, um, you know, are kind of using these other philosophies implicitly in our society is that we don't know what sex is for um, in our society. And so we, we're starting, we're trying to make new meaning um, and that sort of thing. Um, one quote from the book here, our society's hypersexuality has made sex central to personal identity while ironically emptying it of its deeper meaning. So we really need sex, but we don't know what it means, uh, is the point here. Um, so yeah, um, Andrew, it seemed like 
previously you had some other things to say on sex losing grounding and purpose well i, I think the one of the catastrophes of um our late modern postmodern whatever you want to call it eras that we have um we have lost a sense of the transcendent right that we're in what charles taylor calls the secular age where we've um we've made the imminent what we call the imminent what is um accessible to us ultimate right so uh, the things that i can see touch feel taste um, become all that there is right and there is a shift that happens when with that where we we move from saying things as created um and so in a in a created order we see things that are inherently good we see things that have inherent meaning and purpose they're not just artifacts you know artifacts um don't have meaning and purpose in them. And so when we shift to that sense of nature, then, you know, what Francis Bacon says that, um, you know, knowledge is power. The way that we know what a thing is, is by being able to control it. Right. And so now how do I know who the person is? I, I control them. How do I know what sex is? I, I control it. Um, it, it no longer has a goodness or a, a purpose to itself. It, now it's a, a tool. Um, Michael Hamby has a really great, um, he's a philosopher, a Roman Catholic philosopher. He has a really great article about um, a more, per, he calls it a more perfect absolutism. Uh, and he's talking about a technocratic view of the world where we view everything basically as a tool now because we've lost that sense of transcendency. And so in a sense, then, the sexual revolution becomes an outgrowth of the technological revolution. Um, and now I don't see the, the other in front of me now as an inherent good. I see them as a means to an end. Um, and ultimately, in, the, in this conversation, then I see them as a means to my own pleasure. Um, so I objectify that, that person for my, my own gain. Um, and we see this like with the proliferation of pornography and um, all kinds of things. And I think you get, you're going to, at least on the outline, you talk about there are certain ills that have come out of that, out of this. And I think a lot of it has to, goes back to that. Um, we, and so, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, in, in some ways, you know, there's, there's a result to that. There's like uh, how it separates us from other people or from, you know, transcendent purposes, but then we can also just practically see it is that uh, people who don't feel sexually fulfilled in the way that movies or their peers tell them to be uh, feel that um, their, the, their lack of meaningfulness in their life will be fulfilled through a particular kind of sexual activity. Right. And those who engage most in uh, sexual culture uh, ought to be the ones who are most fulfilled and satisfied and happy and content and wise. And, uh, and this is not the case in what we find. Uh, and so right there, the, it falls apart right away, you know, that the, the ideals we try to achieve are not producing the ends that we're trying to, to, to achieve by them. Right. Now that it's all bound up with the so-called authenticity of, of the self and my, what makes me happy, uh, there's nothing to order that anymore. Um, so I can buy into a story from the culture that says, um, you know, love is love. 
that one, one form of expression is just as good as another form of expression. And I've lost any sort of like transcendent order to, to measure that against. Like, is that actually true? Is, is it actually the case that one form of expression is as good as another form? But now because it's, so instead of being an, sex being an expression of something else, of a deeper purpose and meaning inherent in the human person, now it's sort of, well, all that the human person is, is a, is a being seeking pleasure. It doesn't really matter what that pleasure is. Um, that's, that's just who I am. I'm, Quick, quick story. Uh, when I was 19, I uh, had a summer job at a, a large factory here in Buffalo. And, um, and so, you know, as a 19 year old, I spent most of the last five years around teenagers, right? Uh, high school, early college, and uh, on the sports teams that I was a part of, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, uh, se sexual talk, uh, locker room talk around uh, and hearing my peers, my teenage peers talk about uh, what they wanted and the way that they talked about girls. And so then I went to work at this factory and everyone that I was working around in the factory was 35 years older than I was. And we would, uh, I would, I remember very distinctly, we'd go on, we'd take a break and they, you know, like a cigarette break for most of the guys. And I just kind of sat there while, while they smoked. Um, I was a runner, so never very keen on uh, killing my <laughs> running, but, uh, but I would sit around and, and they would talk in the same way that my, 17 year old friends were talking about girls and, and that and the people they saw around them. And I just had this thought of like, what's going on here? Like th these are the people that 35 years down the road, uh, based on their experiences, they've had more experiences than my 17 year old friends have been having. Um, but they still talk about the women around them in the same way. Uh, they don't seem any more content or fulfilled in who they are. Uh, like the language is, is totally the same. It's had no effect on them, their practice through their whole lives right here. And I, and I think that's the kind of, the kind of like wake up call every once in a while we see like, this just, this doesn't add up to what was promised to us, right? Yeah, Brian, I like your approach to, um, you know, talking about what does this do to relationships? What does this do for like actual development? Um, another thing the book mentions in terms of issues with the secular narrative, um, it's, it's really bad for single people, you know, as we were quoting um, going solo before. Um, and he makes the point that um, it really takes practice to um, give yourself to another person in marriage. Like, even though it'd be nice if like our marriage counseling and all that sort of thing made us perfectly ready for marriage, what really happens is we commit, we get in, you know, hopefully we prepared some, uh, and then we have to sort it out together. Um, and instead what we end up with in the secular narrative is this delaying of making the commitment because we want this personal autonomy, this individualism. Um, and so we go through our whole twenties, um, this is just general statistics, of course, but you go through your whole 20s saying, oh, I'm putting that off until later. But the problem is you don't spend that time practicing. Um, how do I learn to love another person instead of, you know, learning to focus on myself all the time sort of thing? Um, and not that, you know, uh, I, I know these are sensitive topics, of course. Uh, there are many people, uh, perhaps even listening to this podcast, who, you know, are uh, uh, later on in... Uh, a relationship, so they desire a relationship, something like that. So not to say that like, you know, it's some sort of uh, um, problem uh, to be in that situation, but just as a general societal trend, um, it, it can make it harder to actually make the commitment to get into marriage if it's delayed because of this ideal that 
oh, I'm going to wait um, until later, until I'm done focusing on myself to then marry someone else. And, and frankly, you see that that results in a lot of divorce as well. Um, so, um, which is another point that he makes um, that along with being bad for singles, it's also bad for relationships, um, marriage or not. Uh, he gives uh, some numbers here. Um, as of 2009, more than 50% of American couples are cohabitating before or instead of marriage. Um, in sociological research, um, settling down later is a nice idea, but a challenging unlikelihood, as people report that the highest levels of marital satisfaction come before um, those married in their 20s. Um, so the point being, again, that, that it takes practice uh, to live into this marital relationship and that there's a direct correlation between um, waiting, between, sorry, cohabitating and uh, divorce rates after marriage or even getting married at all. Um, so just uh, to make the point that um, this view is, is bad for actually achieving the thing that we say we want, <laughs> um, and that is uh, having a fulfilling relationship with another person and that being part of our um, identity. Jimmy, as we're talking about you know, ways that this story breaks up, uh, any, anything in particular that you want to add here? Uh, why is this not working for us? Well, um, I think we talked about it before, but um, feeling is definitely something that I'm, you, know, you hear a lot about. It's, it's about how I feel, about how I feel. And I just think feelings are, are very deceiving. You know, we, we, we talk about that. And, but everything's so motivated by feeling and by novelty. So it's got to be, you know, new and it's got to feel good. And it's got to be fresh. And when, when things start to kind of get old or when things aren't as fulfilling, we're running to the next thing that makes us feel good. It's almost like if you think about any other addictions or anything like that, you know, it's like we get to a point where we have to find something new that's going to give us it because it's the, what we're doing before is not working. And I think especially when you look at relationships, when you look at marriages and the state of marriages nowadays, you talk about like the divorce rate and everything, you know, it, it becomes as Matt's saying, it's it, the marriage isn't so much about having a relationship with another human being, but it's about basically having somebody that um, is there to satisfy your sexual desires. And when that person is no longer satisfying your sexual desires, well, then I'm just going to move on to the next person that's going to do it. And I think that's, you know, it just snowballs from there. And then, of course, on top of that, the kids that are born into those marriages, um, they're not given a really good story. So what happens is, is their, their, their idea of marriage that they are receiving from their parents is then affecting their view of marriage. And so you're seeing a world where you have people that are cohabitating because they think it's a lot better than being married because their parents' marriage didn't work out. So why are they going to do the same thing? And so it, it just, and I think for us as being married men, having kids, you know, there's more of an emphasis and importance on how we treat our spouse and how we love them because realize that our kids are going to look at that and that's going to set, um, their story. That's going to establish their story and how they view uh, marriage and uh, as they get older and as they get to that point. So uh, we've been talking about some of the problems here. Let's get into the positive side. What, what does it look like for the gospel to flourish from within? You know, this, we're living in the world that we're living in and, um, 
and and this is where we are. We're not in uh, we're not in 1700. We're not in 300 AD. We're not in 1950. Here we are in 2020. How does a Christian vision of flourishing of uh, participation in God's nature how how does that work out in uh, when we talk about sex and society here? And then even before we start, I'll just say, you know, I think the the typical answers that we get to this um, are primarily in ethics and and not only that but in our ethical knows uh what what is not to be done uh perhaps sexually uh and it's, it's worth stating that none of us here are providing anything different uh than uh than churches have been saying uh for many years uh in the biblical and christian theological teaching uh, of what sex uh when it's uh, permissible or things like that but how does that fit within a broader story that makes sense uh, that fits into our lives and our discipleship. So, Matt, can I kick that out to you? Um, what, what's part of that story? Yeah, totally. And, and working off what you just said, um, while um, we might try to um, envision and live in a Christian reality, um, I think also even our Christian narratives can sometimes be co-opted by the secular society that we live in, which was kind of the the second reason that we were uh, saying that this is an important topic um, because I've been told directly by um, Christian therapists, uh, even by things I've seen preached and whatnot, um, that uh, their reaction to, oh, Christians aren't prude is that, um, oh, no, Christians actually do think sex is for pleasure. Like, that's what it boils down to is like, that's one of the main purposes of sex is pleasure because God made your body and it's pleasurable. And while we don't disagree that um, pleasure is part of it, um, it sort of can get reduced to that in the Christian world, I think, um, and it leads to a lot of confusion. Um, so instead of that, um, while not saying that it's it's wrong um, completely, what would a, a Christian vision be? Um, well, we all are Anglican Christians um, on this podcast, I mean, uh, speaking on this podcast, um, and so we, we actually have a a marriage ceremony in our prayer book and uh, in our most recent prayer book, we very hopefully have four purposes of marriage, um, four purposes of sexuality within marriage. Um, and, and I'll just read those here um, from the start of our marriage service. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind was ordained by God. And there are four reasons for the procreation of children and their nurture and knowledge and the knowledge and love of the Lord for mutual joy. And I think there mutual joy um, is part of the pleasure part. So we're not denying the body, but, but that's uh, important that it's in the context of relationship that that pleasure happens. It's not your individual pleasure. Um, Third for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. Again, the relationship part. Um, to, main, uh, to maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ. And fourth, for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and family, church, and society to the praise of his holy name. Um, so we might say in short, uh, babies in bonding, uh, that's the first two purposes of marriage, the third and fourth being holiness and mission. Um, and why do we need that? We need that because of what we've already been saying, that our secular narrative says that, that sexuality has no given purpose, that there's nothing uh, that we can make sense of, so we've got to kind of make sense of it in some other way. But 
um, the Christian picture is we actually do have these four purposes and it's, it's part of our embodied givenness. Um, Andrew was speaking to the fact that we are created, that our bodies actually have a design, that we have biology um, and that this is also a sign from God of what the purpose of um, sexuality is. Um, so that, that kind of gets us going. Um, what other things would you guys say about um, the purpose uh, of, of Christian sexuality, a Christian story or vision? Well, I'd like to hear, Matt, if you would, you, you mentioned that there were, um, you named like four, four ways that this has gone wrong, right? Like uh, it's bad for relationships, it's bad for women, it's bad for singles. How does the, how do the four purposes that you just read to us, how do those counter um, those four ills? Yeah, that's um, good. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily one-to-one, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think basically, um, especially in, in, some, in a passage like Ephesians 5, um, we've got a broadening of the meaning of marriage um, to not just some sort of social thing um, even, not just, um, you know, how does it help individuals, um, but we've got a broadening of the meaning of marriage. And, and it doesn't say like just Christian marriage, it seems to imply all marriage, um, is about intimacy in terms of self-giving to one another. And that's right at the heart of the Christian story is how does God give himself to us even when we have walked away from him? Like how is he willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the other? Um, and that that is where true intimacy lies. Um, in, in this relational self-giving. Um, and, and I think we've largely lost that um, in the secular vision that, um, you know, for singles, it, it can not um, in creed, but in practice uh, become about uh, my own sense of freedom or, or in marriage, it, it can be about, um, uh, you know, my own happiness and us both being happy and that sort of thing. But for the Christian, um, the vision is actually that, no, God is like this. God is self-giving. And therefore, that's what he invites us into as well. Um, so I, th- I think that's uh, kind of a first foray that, that marriage is actually a picture of God and his love for us, um, Christ and his church, um, and uh, not some sort of uh, means to, <laughs> to get something else out of it. I wonder if we could make that a, a bit more concrete even. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I agree with you. I, I think that, uh, you know, the mystery is Christ in the church, right? And, and that does, um, it's not only does it show a reality, it actually makes a reality. Um, but I'm thinking like, so what difference might, it, might the Christian vision make for women, right? If uh, the sexual revolution hasn't turned out so well for women, um, and I think the most of the data would suggest that that's the case. That the irony is that they were uh, that women wanted to gain some control um, and, and some equality in the sexual um, game, so to speak. Um, and what we found is that they've actually uh, had the brunt of the burden um, that they. Mark Regeneris, um, a sociologist at the University of Texas, is, has written extensively on, on that. So what difference might it make, might the Christian view and the purposes make for, for women? Um, and I think one of, one of the, the things is that it, um, one, it honors their sexuality, 
right? That bodily givenness, um, the femininity uh, that women innately have in them, it, it honors that and, and wants to lean into that um, and name that as a good, uh, name that as part of who they are. Uh, and it so wants to honor it that it guards it, right? Um, that the Christian picture of, of marriage um, wants to protect, um, and that might strike some as being patriarchal, but it's really an honoring, uh, um, a way of submitting um, myself to the other, giving up on um, my own desire for, for the other and honoring them as a human creature in front of me and, and saying, you know, it's not my place to objectify this person in front of me. Um, and in fact, that this person in front of me is not just a sex machine. Um, that this person in front of me is imbued with the, the image of God, that they, they have an inherent worth apart from whether or not she gives herself to me sexually or not. Um, that she is a rational creature capable of, of loves and, and her own goodness, um, right? And so it's, it's not like I'm, I, I need to protect this person in front of me because they're, they're lesser in some way or, um, you know, the, the, the fairer of the sex, the dainty one, but rather because there's so, there's so much honor in, in this person, so much goodness in this person that I ought not transgress that. Uh, and I ought to want to guard it, you know, like this is, this is precious in front of me. Um, and I, I think what that does is, is that it turns the secular narrative on its head, so to speak. Um, and so then in the, in the, in the, these sort of shaped relationships this way, um, rather than the woman then being an object, she's now elevated again to her right place where I, um, and now obviously the Christian religion doesn't always like, we don't always live in, into our own ideals. Um, and that's regrettable. And that's led to some, some bad things in and of itself. But the problem is like the solution isn't to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. The, the solution is to get to the way things are meant to be right. To fix the problem. I think yeah, I think that's right on um, that work that you quoted is quoted in this book as well. Um, in talking about female sexual scripts that we see all the time um, and that it's largely a fiction, that that's not what women want is sex without strings. Uh, and he quotes the work that you said, uh, premarital sex, uh, by saying, for most women, the strings are what make sex good. <laughs> um, and I think that's exactly um, what the Christian vision is trying to get at. Um, is that in, in that passage I mentioned, Ephesians 5, it's, it's actually a picture of sexual union. Um, it's talking about one body, which is an image of you know, sexual interaction. Um, and it's, no, that person in front of me is my body in the sense that we have this connection, this union that's protected by this relationship um, and that I want to treat this person as good as I treat myself because they are part of me, you know, in a, in a essential way. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I find both Ephesians five and just mere uh, sociological fact that women aren't, uh, benefited by sex without strings, you know, and I don't think men are either when it boils down to it, uh, even if our sexual script says so. <laughs> um, and that actually it's, it's much more, 
um, meaningful uh, to live in this Christian narrative where this happens um, when I'm fully committed to you and you're fully committed to me um, and uh, nothing can get in the way of that until one of us dies, you know, uh, I, I think is a much more compelling vision for sexual expression. We might say that that would lead to human flourishing in a deeper, more meaningful way. It might also lead to more humans. Yeah. Um, that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say like too, like, I mean, it, if you look at like um, Jesus's uh, parents um, in the gospels, Joseph and Mary, you look at Joseph and his example, you know, Mary wasn't at all like devalued because Joseph was basically like protecting her or anything like that. You're like, if anything, like she was of, he saw the value that she was and the value of the child that was in her womb. And, you know, in spite of all of the, all of the things that could possibly happen, you know, his reputation and everything, you know, given that when you live in a small village like that, you know, everybody knows everybody and knows that, Oh, that's probably not, that's not Joseph's child. And for him to still marry her and then to care for her, and, it, you know, it shows that it's like, um, and then the fact is too, like he agreed, like no sexual relations. So it's like, they're married, like no, until after the child is born. So it's like, you know, putting that on hold, it just shows, it's just an example in the scriptures of here's somebody who's fulfilling his role as, as a husband, you know, in a way that um, I think for us as, as, as men, you know, to show that um, again, what, what uh, father Andrew was saying in that was that, you know, it's, you know, to where, to see the other person as, as a value and how that, how that does um, help them, uh, you know, have that value and that, that care so in a Jim, non think, dominating way. I, th I think that's a, that's a good, good one right there. So um, certainly a, a Christian vision of flourishing and obedience in a sense of God's transcendence um, is going to involve ways that our relationships are better. Um, but we certainly, one of, the, one of the important ways that our vision of sexuality differs from the secular narratives is that we deny it in certain instances, that there are times when it is inappropriate or unwise to act on sexual desires. And that's, uh, that's a major part of how we think about all of this. Um, and and I, I think we should jump into that because, uh, A, there are people who are not married uh, or people who are, but for some reason are not able to engage in sexual activity uh, or, or whatever. And, and we can just begin by looking at that. Uh, like you said, I think Joseph is a good, good starting off point right there. Uh, betrothed to a woman um, and uh, either did not have a relation, sexual relationship with her for the time of her pregnancy or uh, per perhaps longer, depending on certain traditions would view it differently. But, uh, but there was at least a time there when the relationship was holy and good. Uh, he was still a human, uh, presumably had desires for that. Uh, but his service to God, which was the ultimately fulfilling thing, was not for, uh, for sexual relationship in that, in that moment there. Um, so what, what are ways that this is a fulfilling or be right for people who are not able to engage in sexual relationships? I'll just ask that question first. You, if you want to jump on that, I'll, I'll add to it also. Yeah, I think it, that gets at the, um, third meaning of our third uh, purpose of marriage holiness. Um, and, uh, there's a book, um, that 
um, probably one of the few um, Christian marriage books that that I um, really enjoyed was called Sacred Marriage. Um, and basically the whole point of the book is right there on the, ty- on the uh, cover of the book. It says, what if marriage is about making you holy um, instead of about making you happy? Um, and I think that really um, gets at it um, is that actually marriage is tough. Uh, you know, you don't have to hear too many stories and you don't have to if you um, are married or have been married. Um, uh, be in a relationship long before you realize, oh man, like I really am selfish and mostly what I want is stuff for me, you know? And so, um, and even when I try to negotiate uh, at the end of the day, sometimes we just have to choose one or the other, you know, somebody's going to benefit and somebody's going to lose out here. Um, and so in the Christian vision, um, that's part of what marriage is for. It's actually the suffering is a trial in the sense of, uh, God is giving you the opportunity to prove yourself faithful. Like, yes, uh, God is giving me the grace to sacrifice myself here, you know? Um, and, um, and, and so for the Christian, then um, we start with suffering in marriage and eventually that turns into the joy of um, a beautiful, um, interdependent, um, uh, um, you know, old couple that, that you look at them and you're like, oh yeah, I want to be like them, you know, and I um, get to their age sort of thing. Um, and often what we found in the secular narrative is the opposite, that, that you get this fantasy of like, oh, this marriage or this relationship will be the perfect ideal and you'll be completely fulfilled. Um, but then it ends up in a sort of fatalism and a suffering of, oh, well, you know, I was just an autonomous individual anyway, and I'm just going to have to dissolve this marriage because it's not making me happy anymore. Um, so we see this kind of reversal of, well, actually, we expect it to be hard. Uh, and then we uh, pray our way uh, with our spouse and self sacrifice um, to uh, 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 a mutual indwelling, uh, a sort of um, holiness with one another, where we're seeking the other's good instead of our own. I find that helpful. So certainly um, one of the major marriage teachings in the New Testament, Matthew 19, one of the divorce sayings of Jesus um, goes on to talk not only about divorce, but those uh, who would be single uh, for a variety of reasons, right? And that um, singleness and not engaging in uh, sexual relationships is also part of the vision of the kingdom of God, uh, in particular lived out by Jesus himself, um, right. and particularly important uh, for some people. I think for most people who are single, it's uh, it's just indefinite. It's for this season, for however long God would have them for. It's hard to say how long. Uh, but there is not only lack in that, but there is positive purpose in it also. Um, I think that's also really important here um, because God did create us uh, with sexuality and that's going to be true for nearly all people, whether or not you're in a particular relationship or not. Um, But um, I think what's important there is that while some people who are called to singleness, uh, again, whether it's for a season or for a long period of time, uh, they are still people who experience desires um, but desire is a, is a complicated thing, um, and desire is something that um, that can work out in a lot of different ways. And and I think some of what we want to say here is that desire, as it applies to sexuality, uh, does mean something deeper. Um, and our own our, our desires, including our desires for sex, 
uh, are things that point us toward uh, desire for uh, to total happiness, desire for uh, total fulfillment. And, and that's something that is true in marriage, uh, but it's also true in, um, in non-sexual relationships also, that uh, we desire a deeper fulfillment. And that's part of what we're feeling when we have that longing for sexual relationships even. Um, so some people are not going to feel the sexual fulfillment of that, but even those who have a sexual fulfillment of that will not have a fulfillment of that desire, uh, in a sexual act because it's about more than just a particular act. Um, so I think that that's one reason that, um, denial and chastity and celibacy are important, um, is because, uh, des desire is ultimately pointed toward God, desire for God, and that is ultimate fulfillment for us. Yeah, and I think that that points to the goodness of singleness, right? Um, for some people who are um, called to that, uh, there's an actual goodness in singleness. It's not a lack. It's a different vocation, right? Marriage is a, a vocation of its own. Singleness is a vocation of its own. Uh, and people who are called to live that single chase life, they're not living a, a, like a second class life. They're living a life that is set apart to something else, something, something we might say that's even greater. I mean, think of, think of Paul, right? Where he, he tells his readers, look, I wish you would stay single. If you're single, then you're not distracted by the things of this world. You can serve a greater, a greater good. Uh, as a, you know, I used to like ruffle at that, that those sayings of Paul and like, oh, what are you talking about, Paul? You don't know what you're talking about. But I, I'm telling you in my married life, <laughs> I get what Paul's saying there. Uh, that, you know, as somebody with, uh, you know, academic aspirations uh, and being confronted with the reality of having three kids with a fourth on the way um, and the, the realities of a full-time job and, you know, those particular aspirations that I have may never, may never manifest um, because I am, I have these concerns for the world, right? Even if I, if my academic aspirations might serve the kingdom, that's, that's something that might not happen. Uh, other things that I might do for the kingdom might not happen either. Uh, my sister who is single at this moment, she has a flexibility where she can go, um, wherever the spirit blows her, so to speak. Uh, and she, ha she has that flexibility and she's able to, to make an impact uh, for God in a lot of places that just aren't open to me because she's single. So she can go and, and do these things for the Lord and, um, and reap fruit that I, I, won't, I, I don't have an access to it. So mm -hmm. I think it's important that as the church, we, we recognize that there's a goodness in singleness uh, and we don't need to set everybody up, right? Like we don't always need to have singles parties or events that are just about, you know, like making sure that anybody who's there like leaves with a date, right? Like, no, let's do some stuff that like, it, that leans into the goodness of singleness and, mm -hmm. and, helping the people that we have in our parish called to, towards that vocation, live that out faithfully. Mm -hmm. Because the, the difference is not between one group of people that gets to act on their desires and fulfill them and another group of people that must deny themselves 
It's uh, one group that serves Jesus and denies self uh, in marriage, and another group that serves Jesus and just denies self outside of marriage. Uh, yes. and, and not only that, but those two groups need each other, that we don't have a community of singles and a community of families, uh, but we have one community, one church, and they need each other uh, to receive the fullness of the body of Christ together. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. And in line with what both of you are saying, I think that also explains um, maybe even some of the suffering of marriage is that we have such this ideal of romantic intimacy and finding ourselves in it that we put too much weight on our spouse uh, to fulfill us in some way, you know? And I think that easily gets bought into a Christian vision of marriage. Um, and I think what you're offering, uh, Brian, um, is actually a, like, wait, no, we actually need, um, you know, friends, uh, especially as men that in our society don't tend to have a ton of friends. We need friends, and the church is a perfect place um, to have that friendship in union with Christ, you know. Um, and then even broader than that, um, as Anglicans, we've always seen that um, temporal authority, society is underneath God's authority. So uh, the church and these relationships are also existing within wider society, you know, and like that's important to us as well. Um, so that, that marriage shouldn't be separated from, can't be separated from the church, can't be separated from broader society. And that, in fact, there are those places and, of course, um, our, our ultimate satisfaction as the single person is displaying in God, um, you know. Um, so I, I wonder if, if some of our marital sufferings could be relieved just by changing our perspective that maybe marriage actually wasn't meant to fulfill us uh, in all these ways. And I think some of that is underneath the angst that some single people feel that I need to get married is because, oh, I'll have, you know, these things built. Not, again, to denigrate um, the fact of, like, it's really nice to have someone who's there in your house and all those sorts of things, you know, where that can be a challenge for yeah, people. We so all love our wives. We're all happy to be married like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say too, like, you know, um, one of the things as we're talking about this, I just think about like, you know, when people look at marriage, you know, they look at it as like, yeah, the self-fulfillment, this idea that if I have the great job, if I have a great marriage, if I have great kids, if they have a great house, all these things, like you feel like you're kind of achieving something in life. And as we look at the scriptures, you know, Christ says, you know, if you're going to follow me, you know, you must deny yourself, take up your cross. You know, it's, there's this, this, whoever is first is going to be last, last, last will be first. It's this, this is emphasis on humility. And the fact is, is that in these, and when it comes to human relationships, um, just as with our relationship with the Lord, there's, there's, there's this, we got to come in with, with humility and realizing that we have to deny ourselves, that we have to uphold the other person in love. And I think, you know, that's where as the church, yeah, we have to kind of communicate those things. So whether it's in single singleness or whether it's in marriage, realizing that the secular world, that the, the secular um, ideal of those things is for raising up the self and for building up the self for self fulfillment. And what the church is saying is it's not about self fulfillment. It's about it's about the community. It's about, it's, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about, you know, it's about those things. And so that means that we have to put our self needs aside so that we can be, you know, so that we can be Christ in our marriages or so that we can be Christ, you know, to, to one another, um, whether it is again in, in marriage, whether it's in singleness. Well, I think this is actually a good note to end on here. 
Uh, we were going to have a list of some practical things, but I think there's a lot of what we've been talking about is our life in the church together. I think this is actually our third consecutive episode in which we finished on a note of, man, the church needs to be a way better community for any of this to work out, you know? <laughs> um, and, and that's true. Um, we need our community to be better. Uh, we need our prayer life to be stronger. We need our faith to be deeper. Uh, we need to know the Lord Jesus more deeply. Uh, if any of this is going to make sense, because it's not just a social vision. Uh, it's, it's a vision that has a supernatural element. It's, it's a vision of the Lord. Uh, and we can only get that through the grace of Jesus Christ. So we, uh, we're going to finish up our episode here. We've been talking about sex and society. This is Devices and Desires. Uh, please uh, follow, um, follow the Facebook page if you're on that. Subscribe if you're on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, send us a comment, and we'd love to hear from you. We look forward to seeking a sacred world in a secular age with you when we meet again next time. Okay. Batman. <laughs> That's the music, right? There you go. You sound like Batman a little bit. Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs>